so here you are back again with the book club and we were just really cruising with that amazing musical superiority that we're having over here and it's just a mock-up it's just like a bootleg so you should really listen to the actual high definition version of that uh and of course we're not going to tell you what it is you have to go find out for yourself but like a lot of things in this program you know things that are identities and and personal or private or hard to come by information or music or details are our prerogative and you should work hard to discover where we find our music or how we come about our information or where our, our library <clears throat> of historical relevancy really comes in and kicks into place here. And we're just really just exploding here in the, the marketplace of ideas and you have no choice really, but to come here and really see what we're going to say. And we're going to do our best to reveal as much information as we can. And on, on this particular episode of the book club, we're going to look at an interesting book here that's going to date us back to 1870. And of course, we're doing all this on our time off and with our particular our cadre in the background here, the shadowy figures of Skeleton Key looming um, here, helping us to keep on the straight and narrow. And we're going to work hard to illuminate this book here, A Glimpse at the Great Secret Society. And of course... There's a name attached to it that back the dates in the publishing of 1872, I believe. But of course, I think that the name is an anonymous fellow, a pen name or something, so that we really don't know who was the actual original author. But it's going to take us back in time to the place and to the, the, the contemporary events that are just after the Civil War and, of course, 30 years before World War I. And so this is at a crucial date. We want to pay attention to here, and this is a crucial time in American history and in world history, and things are moving fast at this time, and, and of course the news events and the bulletins and the names that are relevant and the, and the places and the histories are all much changed nowadays. We don't have a, a Franco-Prussian Cold War going on anymore. We don't have a Prussian state. We don't have a lot of the, the factors. We don't have a czar anymore, and so a lot of those factors are going to be key here as we look back in time you know, a little time machine, and we go back into history and look at these these events that are going to captivate the world. So thank you once again for joining the Palindrome Book Club. So we'll just take a few minutes here to read the introduction and, and some of the, the preface to the third edition here. And I'm not used to reading out loud that much, and I'm not used to really reading this kind of prose and vernacular and writing and long sentence style. It's a little bit elaborate to... So we'll work hard just to kind of bring it alive so it doesn't sound so flat and monotone and, and, and just hard to comprehend. But we'll try to bring it up to speed so we can just get our, in these introductions here, get our, in the preface, get our reading, you know, pace on par so that the readers, I'm nearby where someone's cooking a, a wonderful side dish over here. So, And so we'll just begin with the, the book. The Glimpse of the Great Secret Society. Circumstances have somewhat hurried the production of this edition. Otherwise, the policy of the ultramontane Roman Catholics, which is in fact the policy of the Jesuits, with respect to education, might have been illustrated by some brief notices. While the development of the lay affiliations of the order, introducing persons of both sexes married and unmarried, the more remote constituents of the Great Secret Society might have been further traced for the guidance of the many who are unfortunately ignorant of the symptoms 
or so they might justly, justly be described, of this potent element of disorder. Our reason for avoiding further delay is that some of the scattered indications of the tendency of ultramontane action now added to our former record would lose freshness in elucidating things as they are, if long withheld. The ultramontanes who are wont to assure all those who are attached to constitutional government in this country and to the cause of law and order elsewhere, that they can have no such firm allies as the adherents of the papacy, the devoted sons of the great central authority of the Roman Catholic Church. But in giving these assurances, the ultramontanes either ignore or are themselves not aware of the fact that this central authority to which they are blindly obedient claims more or less the right to supersede and is therefore sure in matters more or less important to become antagonistic to any authority that is not absolutely its own or practically obedient to its behests. Nothing is more astonishing to the uninitiated than the rapidity with which the ultramontanes transfer their allegiance from one extreme of political opinion to the other. The form of national government the Jesuits prefer is undoubtedly despotic, so long as this, the most centralized of all forms of, of government, is really under their command, as were the late dynasties of Naples and of Spain. Yet notwithstanding the wonderful and unscrupulous skill of Jesuit direction, such as the intensity of the tyranny they invariably promote or exercise, that whenever and wherever it has been felt long enough to be understood, their instruments break in their hands. The progress of civilization and increased rapidity of communication have tended to shorten the periods of their success in the maintenance of avowed despotisms. Still, being perfectly indifferent to the amount of human and national suffering they occasion in their warfare against freedom, a brief enjoyment of the control over the depositories of absolute power has attractions for them, which they either cannot or will not resist. And absolutism, the product of and exponent of intense national feeling and pride, such as the autocracy of Russia, may defeat the great secret society and the papacy. But it can only do so by constant watchfulness and measures of retaliation, almost as severe, although not necessarily as treacherous, as the attacks to which it is exposed. So, this is interesting. I'll just pause here. He's pointing out that the autocracy of Russia, which is the Tsar, is in conflict and, and in many ways expelled Tsar Alexander the, the first, I think, I'm not an expert on that, but the Tsar the Alexander had expelled the Jesuits, kicked them out because of their meddling in politics and because of their, their assassinations and their, their weird machinations behind the scenes. And so ultimately this conflict that, you know, this open warfare between the Tsar and the Jesuits is going to be sorted out here in 1917, coming up in just a few short decades. So it will come to nothing, this attempt of this autocracy of Russia to, to have a contest and to go to war with the papacy and the great secret society thereof. So let's we'll get back to the book. The autocracy of Russia may defeat the great secret society and the papacy, but it can only do so by constant watchfulness and measures of retaliation almost as severe, although not necessarily as treacherous as the attacks to which it is exposed. Of this, the circular of Prince Gorchakov, which can be found in the appendix, affords, when read together with the accounts of the Polish insurrection, conclusive evidence. 
Perhaps the most curious aspect of ultramontane action is presented with ultramontanes with a versatility of conduct, which none others with satisfaction to their own conscience can practice, declare their devotion to the extreme doctrines of universal liberty and the most advanced notions of social and political equality, where nowadays we would call it Black Lives Matter or critical race theory or, or Latin, crit, Latin critical race theory or whatever, what have you. This phase of Jesuit action may at first sight appear the most incongruous of all. A little reflection will, however, convince the intelligent reader that there is a powerful element in the organization of the Jesuit order, which is akin to the most advanced, as they are called, but in truth the most barbarously retrograde doctrines of equality. The government of the Jesuit order is monarchical under their general, even to the full extent of constituting an ultra-despotism. And in this, the constitution of the Jesuits differs from the primitive organization of several of, several of the older monastic orders of the Church of Rome, which were rather ecclesiastical in their character rather than military. The general of the Jesuits is an autocrat until he is deposed or dies. And the more despotically an autocrat, because he reigns over that which the French writer applies, aptly describes as a communism of celibates, quote-unquote. Celibacy is neither to the complete and absolute abnegation of personal rights, which is equally the characteristic of communism and of the Jesuit order, since marriage and its consequences, the children and the family, generate patriarchal government, which is alien to genuine communism. The communism of the Jesuit order would be complete but for the absolutism of their general. It is not difficult, therefore, to understand the facility with which they adapt their actions either to, to the support of despotism and national government or to the propagation of ultra-democracy. So they're just pointing out that in the extremes of the political diametric opposition in that triangulation, they still can gain power in the extremes of either one whether it's national government, the despotism in national government, or to the propagation of ultra-democracy. From motives of prudence, the Jesuits disguised their dislike of constitutional government. The gunpowder plot was a failure fraught with, to them, disastrous consequences. But their dislike of constitutional freedom is scarcely less than their hatred of the liberties of the Gallican Church, or their detestation of the Christian Protestantism, or Huguenots, or Jansenists, or Anabaptists or Baptists, or Lutherans, or on and on. Protestantism, that is not Christian, they often flatter, but always despise, knowing that inasmuch as it lacks a genuine appeal to the higher motives of mankind, they can mold it to their purpose or dispose of it at their discretion. All Europe has respected the character of the late, talented von Talembert, and in the appendix to this work will be found the last letter written by him shortly before his death, in which he touched upon political subjects, his last views upon which contrast strangely enough with his previous adhesion to the doctrines of ultramontanism. Yet no one doubted Montalembert's sincerity. He lived to see the ultramontanes conspire to overthrow the constitutional government of Louis Philippe in favor of the Democratic Republic of 1848, with the purpose, as we believe, of subverting the republic through exaggeration of its democratic tendencies and thus supplanting it by the Third French Empire. The Count Montalembert lived long enough to discover that although ultramontanism is always consistent with itself, that is, with the implicit obedience to the power which reigns supreme in the person of the pontiff, it is incapable of genuine amalgamation with anything else. 
we leave it to the theologians to decide whether it is a religion, if fanaticism may be called a religion, consists in anything dogmatically permanent beyond the last decree of the reigning pontiff, provided always that such decree be agreeable to the interests of the society. And, and that's capital S, as in the Jesuit society, the great secret society. However, little such mental subjugation may consist with the sense of duty which inspires those who hold a different faith. No mistake can be greater than to suppose that this blind obedience in the least incapacitates the individual subject to it from the most effective action. On the contrary, the intensity of their combination and the secrecy with which it is enforced enables the great secret society to grapple with the most powerful governments of the world. It was at first amicably allied with the Third Empire of France. Then came a period of coldness between the Allies, approaching to hostility. At last, the great secret society triumphed over the failing energies of the emperor and forced him to a final effort in the interests of the papacy, which ended in his downfall. Scarcely 18 months have elapsed before we find the government of the empire, which overthrew that of Napoleon, entering upon a struggle with the agents of the papacy upon the matter of education in Germany. And that's fascinating, too, because this is going to be at a point and it's fascinating because he's pointing out education in Germany because Marx is going to come out of there, and so is a lot of the other Sigmund Freud and, and a lot of the other academic radicalism is going to arise out of Germany. And ultimately, this book is going to be published 30 years after, uh, approximately 30 years after the creation of Skull and Bones, which is coming out of Germany at Yale. So they would have been involved in, in the federal government during the Civil War, and they would be involved and controlling Washington, D.C. at this point, the, the point in 1872 when this book is published. So we'll just return here to the book. Entering upon the struggle with the agents of the papacy upon the matter of education in Germany is then the conclusion at which we invite our readers to arrive that the great secret society, the direct and right hand of the papacy, a power with which is as invincible it is useless to contend. Such a conclusion is condemned by the history of this country, whose freedom, whose prosperity, and whose greatness have advanced greatly in proportion to the triumph for true religion, that of the Bible, over the corruptions of the Christian faith, of which the papacy and its great secret society are the exponents. While the periods of her comparative weakness have always ensued upon the periodical departures of her government from the Christian principles, which found their exposition first in the church and then in the common law of England. This world is a world of conflict, and although the variations in the prosperity of nations are not sudden as the intermittent phases of a fever patient's illness, still the changes from growing strength to weakness are patent to the perception of even the regular student, and his studies must be limited if he arrive at any conclusion other than the periods of national growth and national vigor, whether original or renewed, have always been those at which the nation adhered most closely to the dictates of the morality, which is perfectly developed only by the means of an open Bible. The antagonist, which even the great secret society has never yet been able to finally to overcome, is that Bible. So, that's his opinion there, and of course we're just going to work out the the, uh, the syntax and the, uh, the structure here as we're going along. So he's going to move along here to another part. The influence of the great secret society in producing the Franco-German War.
There was a remarkable coincidence in the time of the declaration, quote-unquote, of papal infallibility, with the commencement of the late war which was resulted in such a disaster to France. On the 18th of July, 1870, amidst a scene that was designed by the papal curia to be one of the peculiar and significant splendors, but which heaven turned into an unwanted and ominous gloom, the prophecy of St. Paul. Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, which literally fulfilled by the Pope, seated on his throne in the church of St. Peter's. Quote, he is as God, sitting in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. On that very same day, the war, which has been declared three days before by France against Prussia, has commenced by the march of the French forces. Was this an accidental coincidence or was it a design? There is every reason to believe that the war which began on the very day of the papal consummation had been planned for the purpose of using the sword of France in a new crusade, whereby ultramontane influence should obtain an enormous expansion, forcing nations to receive the favored heresy of papal infallibility, now being pressed upon the recreant bishops by an ultimatum from the Vatican with all its inseparable tyranny. This war, which has ended in the unprecedented and deserved overthrow of those who appeal to the sword, was expected to achieve far different results. The date of this commencement was chosen so as to excite the idea that providence, which had interposed in favor of the new dogma, Jesuits intended in, the, in this way to answer and, and silence their opponents, to distract the minds of men from a critical consideration of their proceedings, and to overpower the noble freedom of German thought. Queerness, quote-unquote, wrote from Rome in December 1869 in these remarkable words, which pointed out accurately the program of these constant plotters, the members of the Society of Jesus. Quote, their order is now really, and in the fullest sense, the Urim and Thummim and the breastplate of the high priest, the Pope, who can only then issue an oracular utterance when he has consulted his breastplate, the Jesuit order. But only one thing was still wanting for the salvation of a world redeemed and regenerated. Once again, the Jesuits must again become the confessors of monarchs restored to absolute power. It is one of the notes of an age so rich in contradictions that the president general of the order, Father Bex, is not in harmony with the proceedings of his spiritual militia. Here in Rome, he is reported to have said, in order to recover two fractions of the states of the, of the church, they are pricking on to a war against the world, but they will lose all. But for that reason, as is known, he possesses only the outward semblance of government, while in it is really in the hands of a conference behind the scenes, unquote. The Sword of France was the instrument which was to open the way to absolutism in the church and in state throughout the world. And of course, that was the Napoleon's despotism. Jesuits were thus to become, quote, the confessors of monarchs and restored to absolute power, unquote, holding the same relation to them that Father Lachaise did to Louis the 14th in his dotage. The present head of the Romish church is content to be the puppet of this power, crafty, secret, active, persistent, a power behind the papal throne, overawing its possessor. Intoxicating with their success, ignoring the former reverses of their order, 
and entirely callous to the demands urged for their expulsion in July and September last from Rome and also virtually from Germany and by the adoption of the sixth resolution of the program of the old Catholic Congress held at Munich in October, they are following in the steps of the most ambitious and unscrupulous of their former chiefs. To arrive at the summit, not merely of spiritual power, but of political and worldly authority through spiritual pretensions, this is and ever has been the object kept in view. To attain this end, they bend all their energies and use every means that promises to secure any degree of success and additional influence to their society. They acted upon the emperor of the French through his empress, Empress Eugene, who was devoted to them and obedient to their suggestions, and proved herself their partisan at every risk, by the well-known exclamation, quote, better the Prussians at Paris than the Italians at Rome, unquote. And indeed, we find, on referring to an entry made by Professor Friedrich in his diary, dated May 2nd, 1870, and kept by him whilst at the Ecumenical Council, that he speaks of a distinct understanding having been arrived at between the Jesuits' party and the Tuileries in view of the Franco-Prussian War. I think the Tuileries were the, the Queen's special gardens and, and her castle. The professor observes that it was well known in Berlin that such an understanding existed. He adds, quote, It was no secret but a notorious fact that the Empress Eugene was entirely under the influence of the Jesuits and in constant communication with Rome, and that she was eager in urging on the war, which she repeatedly spoke as Ma Guerre, which means my war, because she regarded it as a sort of crusade. The Empress and her clerical advisors represented the party then dominant at the Vatican. And the Jesuits hoped to promote by war the policy they inaugurated by the Ecumenical Council and the syllabus which had preceded it. The agent employed to conduct the negotiations between the Empress, who after the departure of the Emperor to the army, assumed the supreme power as regent, and the directors of the papal policy was Her Majesty's confessor. The participation of other court confessors, such as those at Vienna and elsewhere, in this affair was also reckoned upon. Even in Italy would, it was thought, be thus brought over to the cause, and if the victories of the Weisenberg and Forth and Spickerin had not so rapidly su succeeded each other, perhaps the calculations made at the Vatican and the Tuileries for bringing about a coalition of the Catholic powers against Germany would not have proved fallacious. The Jesuit power is founded on the papal power. So let's just pause right there. So you can see here that Empress Eugenie is is the regent power in France while her husband, the king, is off fighting a war, and she's over there in the Tuileries and the Queen's Citadel and her gardens, and she's plotting the, a great war against Germany. Of course, why would they be plotting a great war against Germany in 1872? Of course, if you fast forward in history, there was going to be two great wars against Germany. Where, of course, the second one with Hitler would have, he was from Vienna, from Austria, right? So you can see that there's a power designing geopolitical matrix of warfare that's being conducted by the Jesuit order as they try to control and gain power to the, the monarchs and the empress and the emperor and just whatever, whatever hierarchy of monarchical power they can attain power over, they're trying to use it to make war against their enemies. So let's carry on here. The calculations made at the Vatican, now that the Tuileries, for bringing 
about a coalition of the Catholic powers against Germany would not have proved fallacious. The Jesuit power is founded on the papal. All objection to papal tyranny must be stifled. All claim to spiritual freedom on the part of Roman Catholics must be put down as infidelity, which was equal in their eyes to the enormity of Protestantism itself. In the Monde, which I think is the, the local French newspaper, in the Monde, two days after the breaking out of the Franco-German War, there appeared an article in which the writer declared that, quote, the war is not only destined to decide the preponderance of one of the two powers, but will have a most important influence upon the prospects of Catholicism. The triumph of France is necessary in order to, to stay the progress of Protestantism and infidel German philosophy represented by Prussia. The disfavor in which everything German was regarded at Rome is well put in a sentence of the 18th letter of Quirinus, quote, German and of ill repute for orthodoxy are synonymous terms here, i.e. in Rome. Upon the German nation, therefore, was to be enforced a submission to everything papal, a renunciation of all manliness of soul, or freedom of mind, by the power of the sword. The emperor of the French, the quondam eldest son of the church, now no longer looked at as legitimate since his power to serve the papacy had failed, was then supposed to be in possession of force sufficient to achieve this desired object. But even the most astute are sometimes deceived. And fortunate is it for the human race that these subtle plans against freedom have been turned to the discomfiture of their originators. The recent onset against Germany has resulted not only in the prostration of the aggressor, France, but also in the downfall of the papacy itself as a temporal power. The Jesuits, with characteristic selfishness, look with apathy on the misfortune of their instruments, who have committed the unpardonable crime of failure in attaining their leading object, the supremacy of the order of the Jesuits. Constitutional forms of government are everywhere more or less opposed by the Jesuits, democracy as the parent of despotism, and despotism itself alone received their constant fealty. That's the end of the quote. That was in Le Mans magazine in France, July 20th, 1870. We're going to carry on another article here. The Weekly Register tells us, Of the Orleanists, it is enough to say that they are a mere faction in France. They have neither the church, nor the army, nor the people on their side. The clergy do not love them and have no reason to like them. During Louis-Philippe's reign, the church in France was in absolute bondage. The bishops were constantly snubbed, the cathedrals and churches were suffered to go to decay, and the utmost indulgence was given, and the warmest friendship was shown to the violent literary revilers of the church and the enemies of their religion, i.e. to the Gallican Catholics and Protestants, such as M. Guizot. One of, one of the earliest acts of the barricade monarchy was to invade the pontifical states and seize Ancona, because the Austrians crossed the frontier at the Pope's desire to aid in the suppression of a Cabanaro insurrection, the shopkeepers in France and in the large towns were attached to the citizen king, and it is probable that their sympathies still flow in a great measure towards Orleanism. But they constitute only a fraction of the nation, and at best, but a poor prop for an illegitimate Bourbon throne. This was an attempt to throw dust in the eyes of the observers and to hide ultramontane discomfiture beneath the show of bravery. The sufferings of Paris and their 
most striking phases, especially during the Commune, were openly attributed in France to the ultramontane schemes. And of course, the Commune was the the hyperpolitical group that ultimately would burn burn down the Queen's cathedral there and the Tuileries, right? So that's the the I think it was the the Commune would ultimately burn down the Tuileries, and the Commune were openly attributed in France to the ultramontane schemes. And it is a fact worthy of notice that of the murderers of General Clement Thomas and Lacamonte, eight were sentenced to death. Whilst in the case of those charged at Versailles, the murder of the Gallican Archbishop and others, but only one was condemned to capital punishment. Whether Jesuit interests may or may not have been demanded this sacrifice must for the present be somewhat to conjecture, but will be noticed hereafter. To the great secret society, the downfall of France and the desolate homes of millions are as nothing. Men and governments, in its estimation, are merely the counters with which it plays. Sorrows and tears and blood it cares for only as far as these favor or thwart its own schemes. At present time, throughout continental Europe, the more audacious and overt of these schemes have apparently collapsed. As their general Bex foretold the Jesuits would be the case. They have overreached themselves, but have already recommenced their subtle labors. Unchanged in temper and aim, they are looking forward to a terrible revenge for their recent defeats. An undying hatred against those who have checkmated them in Spain, in Italy, and elsewhere is expressed in the following extract from one of their organs. So this is going to be a threat that they're going to, to kind of covertly imply here. And this is going to be the threat that these Jesuit agents are going to set up World War One. So that's what's going to come here. You got to see this is the this is the precursor to the political extremes that led to, to uh, World War One. Of course, the Jesuits are at the front line here. So, quote: The olive of Spain is about to bud forth anew. The subalpine plant Amadeus cannot be induced to take root in the land of Ferdinand and Columbus, Ximenes and Balmes. The Catholic breeze, which comes from the Pyrenees, bears on its wings a tale of a coming crusade, which must effectually destroy the prospects of the son of Victor Emmanuel. Another king, the son of the injured Queen of Spain, is about to take his place. Montpensier, unnatural, treacherous, prince though he, he be, is beginning to repent of the work of his hands and blushes at his own dastard conduct in cooperating with the wretched prim the overthrow of the virtuous Isabella, and in the establishment of the withered branch of the tottering house of Savoy. And we go on. But Spain is about to become resurgent. True, she may, and no doubt she shall, suffer from the Amadean crime, but her suffering shall be like those of France, purifying, salutary, and rehabilitating. Her punishment, like that of Italy and France, will be a blessing, which shall result and the assertion of the Catholic eternal principles of right, which are deposited in the hearts of the masses, and which no encroachment of heresy, no glittering tinsel of false philosophy could ever tarnish. The Savoyard must go home, and we wish it were in peace. But there is no peace for the wicked Victor Emmanuel for his wretched son. May he go, he shall go, but the dark cloud of his evil genius may long obscure the brightness of sunny Spain and leave behind him in the land of the olive and the vine a long train of miseries, which all right-minded men would prefer to see him carry away with him. 
So you can see that this is the political design, and they talked about a coming crusade that would punish all their adversaries here in Spain and Italy and France, and they're furious with the fact that their their scheming has failed, and they they will they swear revenge. So this this was written in 1872, and it would only be 40 years later that the actual production of this revenge would take place. So that's kind of why we're building this up in the background. This is the, the historical and geopolitical balance, the scales in the balance here. All right, so we're going to carry on with the writer here. And you, you just got to keep pace because we're going back a long way. And these this is not contemporary necessarily to our modern historical understanding, but this is the development of history here. And it's a fascinating book. The continual distrust now fostered between Amadeus and his supporters and the perpetual disturbance under under the premiership of Sagasta and the subsequent ministers afford convincing evidence of the development of this spirit of vengeance. The German governments have had abundant cause to estimate at their true value the professions and the practices of the ultramontane combination. Now that the effort to subjugate Germany by force has so signally failed, her answer is given in no undecided terms. We are indebted to the standard for a valuable and accurate summary confirmed in the substance by the Talbot of the measures taken by the government of the German Empire showing their distrust in the, the ultramontane party. These measures are of greater significance than the other important characteristics of the internal policy that have distinguished Germany since the conclusion of peace. In Prussia, though, the royal family are Protestant. The Roman Catholic Church received recognition of an organization responsible to the state with regard to the religion of a certain portion of the people. There was a ministerial department for matters connected with the church. This department controlled the executive powers, which the national system of education in Prussia accorded to the Roman ecclesiastics. The Prussian government has had reason to complain for many years past that the position accorded to the Roman church was used to cover many abuses of power in the ultramontane interest. And this is in the area of education. Some years since, an eminent scientific professor in the University of Bonn, which is interesting because we're going to have to hear a lot more about that, and the University of Bonn was removed by order of the government because the Archbishop of Cologne disapproved of the nature of his scientific teachings. The Prussian government then seemed anxious to conciliate the Roman authorities in the hope of receiving their support. The internal policy of Prussia was abruptly more ultramontane than that of the more thoroughly Catholic portions of Germany. This party, although utterly crushed in, in Wurttemberg and in a minority in Bavaria, yet exercised a strong influence in the Rhenish provinces of Prussia than in any other part of the German Empire. So they're centered in Wurttemberg and in Bavaria, which is fascinating because Bavaria is where the, the University of Ingolstadt rests, where the famous secret society of the Illuminati was born in 1773 in Bavaria. So it's no wonder to us that that's a Jesuit stronghold, and it always has been. So the Catholics of these provinces seemed to vie with their co-religionists throughout Belgium and in Ireland in their devotion to the Roman See. The relations between the state and the Roman Catholics of these provinces until recent years were relegated by Concordat as in Austria, 
and the ecclesiastics were held extensive power and patronage, whilst in the other portions of Prussia, the appointments of bishops and even of parish priests were controlled by the crown. So you can see that the crown and the sovereign head of state had a lot of control over whether what the politics and what the message and what the prevailing ideology within the the priests and the archbishops would be in their in their area. Of course, over the course of time, the Roman Pope would get total control over all these appointments. And so we're going to see that as we move forward. But there was a time when the crown or the the archduke or the emperor would have, the, the imperial throne would have control over, I mean, who would be placed as bishops or as priests or as archbishops and so on in our, in an archdiocese. So this is a point of political contention that's taking place here. Whatever were the political objects which at, this, at that time induced the Prussian court to favor this growth of the ultramontane power, the chief authority of the state has shown that a most effective blow might be struck whenever it thought fit. By an order in the council, the separate department for Roman Catholic affairs has been abolished, and the machinery with its director, Mr. Muller, rather the delegate of the Pope, than of the king and the Rhenish provinces has been removed." The Concordat is not yet abrogated, but the special government department charged to carry it out is abolished. These measures have been followed by others of a still more decisive character. One of the priests recently excommunicated for refusing to accept the new doctrine of infallibility of the Pope, Herr Kaminsky, has been authorized by the government to continue to celebrate Mass, and the ministry has ordered special reports to be made to them of the intrigues throughout the kingdom that the infallibilists are now carrying on. So there's a political contention here, there's a political fault line where the Pope is trying to take down several of those priests who don't want to accept this new doctrine of the absolute infallibility of the Pope over everyone else, even the king or even the emperor. Everyone has to everyone on earth has to get down on their knees and and, you know, open their mouth and take holy communion from from the, the Pope of Rome, because he's the ultimate authority on, on earth, right? That's that's the, that's what this new doctrine is saying. And so, so many people are resisting the doctrine, and as Rome is trying to pull down and to to defrock these different priests and bishops, it's the, the, the ministry and, and the, the authority of the sovereign and the, the government who is trying to keep them in place. So it's these infallibilists, those who believe in the infallibility of the Pope of Rome, that everyone needs to kneel and lower their head and be subjected to the Pope of Rome. This new political doctrine is being actively carried on by the Jesuits, is being enforced as a prerogative across all across Europe. So that's really what's the underlying form of ideology that's being resisted. That's what Spain and the, um, the King of Italy and all the other monarchs are resisting is that the Pope is somehow somehow a monarch, and that he's infallible, and everyone else on earth is, is subjugated to the Vatican. So that's a pretty powerful doctrine there. So we'll just carry on some more. These and others are only measures of defense falling upon the abolition of the official department, which was only a portion of the ministry, lately controlled by Mr. Mueller, under the German title of cultist, regulating all matters relating to education and religion. The Augsburg Gazette points out that this department has existed for 30 years and no one ever thought of regarding it as a temporary nature. 
and looked forward to its approaching abolition. The subsequent acts of the minister, however, clear up all doubt upon the subject. The attitude of the imperial government has completely changed towards this policy and this party, who unhappily are still a power in Europe and in the world. So you can see that this particular party, who is unhappily a power in Europe and in the world, was the same power in Bavaria before that was causing all kinds of problems. It was the Illuminati, it's the same power of the Jesuit order that's causing problems all across Europe. And for this reason, they're going to be, they're going to experience a, a downfall as the different kings and authorities and governing councils of Europe kick them out. So let's carry on. Events in southern Germany have cast a great deal of light upon the subject. When the Dollinger movement first commenced, the Berlin press expressed the most supercilious indifference to it, just as our liberal party here affected to believe that ultramontanism has no terrors for them. They opposed it in common with all others who professed a respect for freedom and constitutional rights, but pretended that such was the superiority of their weapons and the fullness of their light that they had nothing to fear from its machinations. The Berlin press represented the struggle in Bavaria as something belonging to an earlier period of humanity rather than that in which it was their privilege to live through. This movement has become too important to be thus treated. The Catholics of South Germany have pronounced for it emphatically and the imperial government hastens to assume the leadership of the movement. All the astute diplomatizing which the court of Rome has employed since the commencement of the war has failed. The Pope's letter to the emperor and the correspondence carried on through the Archbishop of Passan at Versailles, the, the parade of the relations between Cardinal Anatoly Antonelli and Baron von Arnhem, the German envoy at Rome, the bright hopes founded on intrigue are gone. The new German empire feels the necessity of casting off its alliance with the papacy, a feeling which has been for some time reflected by the Roman Catholic government of Austria. In Bavaria, a Roman Catholic country where certain prerogatives are granted to the Church of Rome, a difficulty represents itself, presents itself that does not exist in Prussia, where the knot has been cut by abolishing the quasi-recognition of the independence of the Church by the state. This proves that the strength of the Dollinger movement in Germany, the genuine, genuineness and power of feeling and distinct from obscuritanism which, with which the anti-papal name of the great theologian has once associated. Yet it would be a great mistake to think that all this will render ultramontanism harmless. All these calamities will affect little else than to define more distinctly the sphere of this party. It is no longer controls the state in Italy. It is more ostracized in Prussia than in Belgium or in Ireland. But it would be a mistake to suppose it impotent for evil. It's moreover the uneducated masses will always be great, and all the greater because its chief appeal will now be to them alone. The state in Germany and in elsewhere has failed to come to the settlement with the ultramontanism, and the state cannot simply ignore it. In this case, the ultramontanism of those who are infallibilists, who believe in the infallible authority and the supreme authority of the Pope over all sovereigns and kings and rulers and people of the world and everyone else. And of course, his great revenge would come in World War One and World War Two, which was generational. So the people who would set these plans in motion would have, the plans would have to be carried out by their those who would come after them would have to actually 
execute these plans and a, and a dictator would have to be military dictator like hitler would have to be built up and trained in austria just as stalin was trained by capuchin priests right in a seminary in georgia so he was ultimately controlled by papists there and this ultramontane force of the infallibilists were going to create a massive war and at the end of world war ii all the german state had to pay the attribute to the the sea of rome had to pay a tribute a tax to, to germany so the beginning of this story is the German state throwing off the papacy, and the next hundred years will bring about wars that would bring Germany totally, totally into submission under the papacy. So as we carry on here, we can see that this uh, manuscript is copyrighted. That date, 1872, a glimpse of the great secret society, the pen name Charles Dudiget. I think it's anonymous author. And as we proceed here, link is in there if you want to take a closer look at it but i dislike the prose and i like trying to read it and just kind of get used to getting comfortable um, you know taking a look at, at some of the the circumstances that were happening at the time and if this is all just propaganda then then who wrote it and if it was, in whose interest does it does it serve and uh you know if these are not these allegations are unsubstantiated then what is the truth of the matter so you know we have to look and just take a peek here in this country and in the, the united states the design of jesuitism is in the main the same as in germany though attempted by somewhat different means an instance of the consequences which result when a democratic government courts this treacherous power is shown in the following extract quote we have been for some time reliably informed that the inhabitants municipal government of the city of new york had petted the papal church in a into a position of such superiority over other sects that the civil authorities began to feel an uncomfortable pressure from the favored denomination namely the papacy in rome under date october 30th 1869 the new york correspondent of the morning post wrote the politicians of new york have long paid courts to the prelates of the catholic church and the latter have not scrupled to use them the great bulk of the catholics are irishmen and all the irish are democrats not because they are catholics but because they are irish the democratic politicians have perhaps imagined that by liberal endowments and donations for catholic purposes they might induce the priesthood to use their influence in behalf of the democratic ticket new york has long been ruled by the irish politicians they are not very good catholics but they are at least were sufficiently well inclined towards their traditional faith to make for its benefit the most liberal donations unquote and then follows a catalog of endowments and donations given by the municipality to roman catholic churches so they were receiving massive amounts of money right into the roman catholic coffers from the municipality of new york conventional and monastic institutions hospitals schools etc which testifies to the dexterity of the late archbishop hughes and might well gladden the heart of sir george bauer reliable information received in december last 1871 confirms a previous statement that rome to some extent has succeeded in paralyzing scriptural teaching throughout most of the common schools in the united states so that's fascinating they they worked hard to make sure that scriptural bible teaching was not in the schools and of course ultimately i think they got the bible taken out of schools altogether right so we carry on 
for educational institutions in New York, for education, educational institutions in New York alone enjoy public endowments amounting to four hundred twelve thousand dollars per annum, while one hundred sixteen thousand dollars or less one. It's some total. It's going to go through some figures. And this is the St. James Chronicle, 1871. So these old newspaper clippings. It's great. The disproportion of these benefactions thus given to the papal church, then compared with the aggregate allowance made to their denominations, affords indeed a curious commentary upon the notion of religious equality for which the nonconformists in this country clamor, and with which Mr. Bright and his pupils have so carefully imbued the present government and the majority of the House of Commons. The occasion of the revival and the cry of religious equality in England, one which as subjects of a foreign power, Romanists have no right to raise, but which have been marked by such eminent success and papal aggression of late years, ought well to be remembered. So here, it's a good point. The author points out that when you're a Romanist and you're a infallibilist, so that your your religious and your deepest religious belief is that the papacy is infallible in, in deed and word when he sits in his chair ex cathedra as Pontifex Maximus and in Rome and the Roman uh, castle there. So of course it's it's ridiculous. It's astrotheology and it's paganism. But let's carry on, let's just do just a little bit more here. Occasion of the revival of the cry for religious equality in England, one which, as subjects of the foreign power, Romanists have no right to raise, but which have been marked by some eminent success and papal aggression of late years, are well to be remembered. It originated 16 years ago with the late Count Montelembert, who then published his Political Future of England, and in that remarkable book, recommended the Roman Catholics to adopt this cry as a lever by the dexterous use of which they might affect almost anything in this country. Just before his death, two years ago, the Count de Montalembert avowed that when he published his Political Future of England, he was under ultramontane influence. Queerness informs us in his late fifth letter that the Roman Catholic bishops from the United States were very uneasy at the temper manifested by His Holiness the Pope at the prospect of having to conform to the decrees of the council. On their return to their transatlantic diocese, one of them exclaimed out loud, quote, Nobody should be elected Pope who has not lived three years in, in the United States and thus learned to comprehend what is possible at this day in a freely governed commonwealth, unquote. So with that, we'll just take a quick... So, just pull back again. We're working hard over here in Florida. Had a pretty intense storm move through there. Hurricane Ian. <laughs> yep. I think that we should just raise our own funds. I don't think we need help from Washington, D.C. If they're going to try to have strings attached or play politics in, in regarding a storm, I think we should just uh, we should raise our own funds. We'll, we'll pass the plate around in churches. We'll, we'll get the money together and we'll put together this this uh, the, the damage in the state ourselves and just recently in the news the FBI has really outdone itself in an incredible way because of the way that they have went and arrested Mark Houck 
I don't know if this is just some kind of like stunt that they're pulling to try to make themselves the most unpopular, hyper-political Gestapo paramilitary police regime in history here, the FBI. The FBI is out of control, huh? I mean, what are we supposed to do about that? I mean, what's, what's next? Are they just going to send out death squads? We're so, we're so, like, disabled as sheep in a pen. And these wolves, these federal, the woke Gestapo, Neostasi, right? The, the, the Fed can come down and just run up on you and take what kick your shit, kick your door in, shoot you maybe. Oops, shoot you. The police just recently were trying to arrest a father who had absconded with his teenage daughter. I don't know what the details are that, but they, they killed them both. So is that, is that what the goal is here? Is that what the outcome of this all is going to be? This police state out of Washington, D.C. taking over? And if, uh, and if you're doing things they don't like, man, they're going to shoot you. And I think that's what comes up next with um, Mike Lindell. I mean, trying to roll out of the Hardys. And the, the FBI just roll up and, and just bitch slap him like that. Take his phone and just have him like, st- I can see him stammering there. And so that's that's what we all got to deal with, guys. And uh, now this is the lowest echelon of the homemade podcast makers, like myself, right? And everyone who went and listened to this podcast. I guess there's no more limitations. There used to be like one jump. We can look at your phone and all your contacts, but only one jump. Yeah, I think that's gone now. I think they're just gonna like put us all on auto auto record and just weed through the the texts. Like it's some kind of KGB to root out all uh, heretics and uh, dis- dissidents and, Ill- and liberals. So I guess I'm a liberal now, right? I thought I was just a conservative freeman. But now uh, I have to be considered to be some kind of danger to the state, you know? And so that's what this podcast is about. We have to go through a lot of information, guys. And we listen to a lot of authors and lecturers and professors, authors. Did I, just, did I already say authors? Uh... Just thinkers out there who are just not afraid to put the information out. All these secret societies, all these restricted organizations, they're all about just keeping the books closed. I, I, you know, I'm, 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 uh, I'm one of those guys who want to see the books, see the information, know what's in there. And as far as like high-level Scottish right Freemasonry, <laughs> controlling Washington, D.C. and controlling the world, all that kind of stuff... I'm not interested in making you become a a Freemason. I just want you to see the doctrine that they're peddling inside the lodge. It's the same thing with some of these other knighthood orders. You have the Knights of Columbus. You have the the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, right? I don't want you to become involved with the KKK, but I want you to just see what their information is and what they're peddling and what their, their doctrine is all about and what they're teaching. And as far as the K is the, uh, the 11th letter of the alphabet, 11. So if you have three Ks, three 11s, three times 11 is 33. So KKK is just a symbol for 33. And it's that Luciferian, high occult, Freemason symbol again. That's why Albert Pike was involved in creating the the, uh, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. But it's, there's also the Knights of, the, of Columbus. They've been around since 1833. They were created in New Haven, Connecticut. Along, uh, which is the same place there when Yale, that's where the Skull and Bones are created in 1832, right? By William Russell. Well, turns out that uh, the following year, in the same place in New Haven, at St. Mary's 
uh, church there, the, the powerful order of the sister organization of Skull and Bones, really. The Knights of Columbus was created there, too. And this is before the Civil War. So Skull and Bones had immediately put presidents into office, right? Their, their first members were going right to the, to the, the center of Washington, D.C. to take control. And their, their, their subsequent years, the Skull and Bones members would control Washington, D.C., but little did people know the Knights of Columbus did exactly the same thing. They had exactly the same kind of occult influence in the background, being a papal knighthood order. What about the Knights of the Golden Circle? All right, that was exclusive to, to Florida and to the, uh, to the triangle of slavery that, uh, that had to do with Havana and you know, bringing the ships in with all the transatlantic slave trade, bringing them on in and having them dumped off in, in different areas. Maybe uh, before Haiti was really Haiti, right? It was Haiti and the Dominican Republic really went after the slaves revolted and they no longer were going to remain slaves. I think that the, the members there killed every white individual they found on the entire uh, island. But then the other, the other side of the island is independent democratic institution with plenary powers to define its own future and its own destiny. But after the Civil War, after the creation of the, the military dictatorship, after creating these executive orders and the and overthrowing the Constitution on one level when, when Lincoln was shot in the face, he was unable to restore the jure republic, or he probably should have did it in the morning before he uh, got shot. We didn't have time. And left this extraordinary commander-in-chief and military dictatorship in power. And these executive orders just roll. And every, every president thereafter commanded these executive orders that were put into position by Lincoln. And so all, all states and counties and municipalities in America were subordinated to Washington, D.C. It's like, it's like having the public library come and uh, hold you at gunpoint and put you in chains. Because the federal government was never meant to be at the national government over with, with supremacy over all the states. It was the states who had supremacy, and they put together a national government for the, the better, uh, for the mechanism of us and the apparatus of the different sovereign nations, states, to interact and to make rules and laws you know, in regards to one another. And to raise up taxes and armies if they needed to, if several states needed to defend themselves against encroachments in the border, so on and so forth. But that federal government became a national government and became a monstrosity and it became an imperium, an, an empire that took control over all the peoples in the states who now we have to beg Federal Reserve notes now in DeSantis has to beg for money from Washington, D.C. for if there's a bad storm. So in the furtherance of freedom and the restoration of the jure constitution, constitutional government here in America, that's why we're moving forward with this podcast. That's why we're proliferating this information. Nope. We're not interested in and um, hurting people's feelings. I'm not interested in, in fanning out the wild conspiracy incendiary theories of, of some of the, the people that we have on our show. I'm interested in furthering the kind of madness of any of the 
anti-government forces or whatever they may be. I mean, I guess if there's any, like, American terrorists out there, we're against them. I don't, I don't know what that is. I mean, they're just they're trying to stand up some kind of straw man for the federal government, the federal agencies to try to chase down. But we're not interested in trying to see the capital city damaged or invaded by some people. That's useless. What we need to see is a repeal of the executive order integrating with the Enemy Act and the Emergency Banking Act and some of these other, the, 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 the emergency declarations, the executive proclamations, they need to be overturned. The executive branch needs to be put back into the constitutional framework. It's legal. You need to stop issuing these, these executive orders. The Federal Bureau of Investigation was created by an executive order. It's illegal. It's unconstitutional. It shouldn't exist. It should have no power overall, except for as a, an extension of the emergency war powers of the, the dictator, the military commander-in-chief. That's how the FBI shows up with its guns to shoot with its computer to hack its agents to subvert you. Because it exists to extend the power of the federal government in Washington, D.C. But the federal government in Washington, D.C. is not a constitutional government. So the Constitution is in that weird case, and it looks like an old, crumbling document because it, it has no power in Washington D.C. anymore. So we we can return, we the people, can return the government to a status that's legal, get the courts back to Article Three courts instead of these Article One legislative statute courts that are not in the Constitution. We can get back to gold and silver money. That's in the Constitution. Money is to be coined in gold and silver. Yeah, duh. We have fiat Federal Reserve note currency. It's it's national. Why do we have a national money? I live in Florida. I don't want some kind of money printed out of Washington, D.C. So we have a lot of truth to get at here, guys. So as we go through these controversial authors, I want you to eat the meat and spit out the bone. And we're trying to target some of the aspects of history that some of these individuals are brave enough to talk about and the rest of the absurd claims that they make. We're just leaving them aside. Everyone has an aspect of, of pedagogy that they're not totally clear on. Maybe it's nuclear particle physics. I don't know. Right? Maybe the guy who, who talks about history, about ancient secret societies, doesn't know about nuclear particle physics. I get it. And how many of us have really had a chance to travel a lot and see, see all the world? I think the more people could get up in an airplane and fly more, they would probably put to bed all these like, weird flat earth guys. I think that's just like a gaslight thing to see who will be dumb enough to join. But if you're dumb enough to join, it's, it's because you've never seen the curvature of the earth before with your own eyes. That's all it is. You just need to see more, learn more, do more. And um, just are only confined to the charismatic statements of individuals and their weird writings and just the English language can, you know, you know, vocabulary can be twisted into a puzzle that can be hard to, you know, with words you can show the earth is flat with words, you know. But if you go up into uh, a high enough elevation and see the earth for yourself, you know, the, all, the, the, all the sophistry and the, and the deceitful and artful pseudo-science of the world can be more easily let out. So, these are, we have a chance to have a, a, a look at the real information in this country. 
because we still have the accoutrements and the, we still have a modicum of freedom here. So with, as the press wants to censor everyone and social media and the internet just squelches all this, all this vital information, we're going to try to push it out. And we have individuals like Mark Houck. I mean, that guy is just sitting there with his family and they're Catholics, right? So they're, they're trying to have virtue and be good and say Hail Marys, have lots of children. And they have the worst time because they have this horrible Pope, this horrible Jesuit Pope in the Vatican. Makes it hard to be a Catholic, doesn't it? And you have these, uh, these power mongers, these geopolitical empire builders trying to, to run your church. And you're just trying to to bring good, good merit out to the world by saying you know, repetitious prayers and do, doing the things that the Roman church asks you to do. And with the badness of their political scheming, you end up with an FBI sent out by a Roman Catholic president to arrest a Roman Catholic man because, because nothing. Just, just, to, uh, just to, to politically, just to politically persecute they try to terrify the people of America, right? They try to, ter- to terrify the Catholic people. They try to terrify the people with and use the weapon of the state with the FBI as some kind of bludgeon against the American people. Well, listen, it's time for us to step it up. It's time for us to get active, and, and it's time for us to recognize that we're not here to be victimized sheep of these wolves out of the federal government there. It's time for us to get to the facts. There's a legal reality that the constitutional framework of our of our government it has limited and brought enumerated powers. They're not listed to the people. And so we have the power, guys. We have the power, and we need to address this in massive numbers. We, the people, have to put our government and all of its federal agencies in check. We need to restore the crime, the sin and crime against the American people and against God by allowing this military dictatorship, this commander-in-chief power structure... These executive, illegal executive orders are nowhere in the Constitution to be established. It's a curse to America that the president that followed Lincoln didn't do what Lincoln desired. What all the presidents before him had done, which is to restore into place the de jure constitutional executive branch without this commander-in-chief executive proclamation being established. It's something that's completely illegal for Biden to go out and be like, yes, I signed this paper and I spend trillions. It's illegal. He's not, he's not an emperor. He's not like a Caesar of Rome. And now they're stealing the election with these, with these false election results. And you're almost outlawed. You're almost outlawed and, and censored and criminalized if you say how they stole these elections with these machines with the stuffing of the ballot. And they like to try to like separate those two things. But it was both things. They, they had to create millions of false votes on these computers and with these ballots and in, 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 in a thousand different ways that they could possibly cheat, they cheated. Zuckerberg paid for it. It was all arranged by the, the mad Marxist elite power structure on the left as they're trying to dismantle this country and turn it, turn it into a dark ages run by the, uh, the, the neo-Stasi police state out of Washington, D.C. It's unthinkable that they're making us poor while they glut themselves on the printer up there. The printer just prints out hundred dollar bills and big stacks they gotta have a they gotta have a pallet jack to move it around 10 tons of money and they all just bluff themselves as we are getting poorer and poorer and begin to starve out here we, we're not kulaks guys we have to do something about this so this history is crucial and if you can go through it and refute it then please do come at me i'm just used to it 
I'm ready for you. And if you can bring more information to the table or correct my error, I'd love it. I want to be more perfect. I want the message to be more clear. I want, I want to be more, more evident to people than ever before that it's time for us to stand up and to put... This federal government cannot arrest 300 million Americans. We have to be all on the same page. It's time for us to seek the Lord. It's time to be in repentance. It's time for a great revival, a great awakening in this country, which is the only, the only thing that's going to accompany a restoration of our Constitution and our government does. These courts, they're unconstitutional. They're Article 1. I went through this. And you don't have to like the messenger. You don't have to like how we arrived at the information to get to accept the reality that this is not working. The IRS has established to be the collection arm of the federal, the federal debt machine. Yeah, man. They pass around trillions of dollars. It's going to cost over a trillion dollars just to, to pay for these kids' debt, their college debt. Who didn't want to pay? Who signs up to get you? What, do you, what is this like? The Politburo and the Soviet Union. Who signs up to have their own personal private debt paid for by the government? What are you just like? You're asking for a communist food card, man. It's, just, it's insane. It's insane what we're dealing with, guys. So uh, this this work here, it's very nuanced, and we have to go through all kinds of different avenues to arrive at the clarity of the information. But it's it's there. I'm, I'm hitting it for you guys. I'm hitting it hard, I'm making it real clear, real evident what the the truth of this, this is not reptilians and UFOs and, and weird uh, mind-numbing flat Earth conspiracy theories. It's not what we got here. I'm on target. I'm showing you clearly the instinct to you the truth of these matters. We're going to go into the Bank of England, how they're starting to correct the bond market. This whole debt structure is set up to pay the Bank of England, who is our creditor. It's always like, we have to raise the debt limit. Well, who, who is the debt limit being raised to? Who is who's the borrowing from? That's the big secret, the Bank of England, right? We, we, there's so many like fundamental truths that we need to establish in our minds so that we can be in reality. Oh, this reality is scary and it's uncertain. I didn't expect things were this, you know, insecure and dangerous in the world. Well, that's the world we live in. It's better to like be walking without a blindfold on if you need to to walk on this high wire, right? And how blindfolded do you want to be? You know when they take you into the lodge when you become a Freemason, they put a blindfold on you. It's like the CIA when you have to wear like a black hat. You know what I mean? You have to go to the Guantanamo. They can't bring you into the United States because then you'll have rights. <laughs> right? They got to hold you over there. The CIA has got to set up a military structure to keep dangerous people out of the United States so they can't possibly have the benefit of American rights. Well, they, they started to move them inside the United States because it doesn't really matter anymore. There's no special protection anymore. So, remember, you have to get back to de jure, which means constitutional, normal operations of the of our federal government the normal operations of our state governments and everything to go back to what it was before 1933 March 9th and before uh, the 1860s before Lincoln when we had a an executive branch that was requiring to stay within the bounds of the law and we had a, a legislative branch that wasn't creating chaos across the nation it's in, in, uh, and, and participating in the, the, the cold overthrow and coup d'etat of democracy by stealing elections and producing false election results. That's what the legislature's doing. And we didn't have a, a, a Supreme Court that allowed Roe versus Wade or that allowed for the 14th Amendment to be ratified when it, it, w it wasn't ratified. 
it's, it's unconstitutional. Therefore, the judicial branch would be responsible for pointing out that it's not ratified. Those are, those are the things that we're dealing with in this country. That's how we got so far off base. That's how we have these government black op sites everywhere. That's why we have all these secret labs in Ukraine and in Wuhan where they were making COVID. So needless to say, we're starting a new episode of here, the Palindrome Book Club. I would just ask you to just join up, join the book club. We have a fascinating book this, this week. And it's called A Glimpse of the Great Secret Society. And we're going to get into a discussion of that. But yeah, just thank you for supporting us, guys. Thank you for listening and learning and sharing this. Uh, this. And if you see any holes in our information or any parts of the story that we're not clearly elucidating or we're not uh, covering enough or putting enough light on, please let me know. Give us uh, an email. And uh, support us with an email. You can, we'll definitely receive any kind of like financial support or physical support of any kind. You can hit us up on Cash App. So, thank you for joining us again, guys. So, we'll just carry on just a little bit with our reading here and just get back into the book A Glimpse of the Great Secret Society, 1872. Um, it's published in London, and obviously they're uh, in London as well but a highly informed. The Times, New York correspondent, informs us, in New York, the Orange Man recently determined to celebrate today, the 12th of July, by a procession. The Ribbon Men determined by force to prevent them from carrying out their purpose. Both sides, armed, fears of a disturbance were excited. The authorities hesitated, but ultimately decided to protect the Orange Men procession since the Roman Catholics had often undisturbed marches and processions throughout the city. So the Orange Men being a, a Protestant secret fraternity, and the Ribbon Men being a Roman Catholic band of thugs who were there to basically disrupt the Protestant men from the Orange Men from marching. Then we carry on with the, with the reading. The Ribbon Men, however, were not to be deterred from violence, even by the presence of three regiments, they fired upon both the procession and the military, encouraged perhaps by their recollections of the more than exemplary forbearance of English troops under a similar provocation. They were, however, mistaken in expecting forbearance from the American army. The 84th Regiment, which was in advance of the procession, fired without orders. The result reported is that 31 persons were killed, 75 were wounded. Among the killed were two policemen and three soldiers. 165 rioters have been committed for trial. Such is the result of American political pandering to popery and ribbonism. The power of England is coveted especially by the society. Dr. Manning, their patron and apologist, has declared this in no indistinct terms. The tablet states that in a sermon preached to a Roman Catholic synod under Cardinal Weissman's presidency by the present Archbishop Manning, then prothonotary, he made the following remarks. If ever there was a land in which work was to be done and perhaps much to suffer, it is here. I shall not say too much if I say that we have to subjugate and subdue to conquer and rule an imperial race. 
we have to do with a will which reigns throughout the world as the will of old Rome reigned once. We have to bend or to break that will which nations and kingdoms have found invincible and inflexible. Carries on, quote, Were it heresy conquered in England, it would be conquered throughout the world. All its lines meet here. And therefore, in England, the Church of God must be gathered in all its strength. These expressions, slightly varied through the, though the same in purport, are found in a volume of sermons on ecclesiastical subjects by Dr. Manning. It is a, a significant fact that the next sermon in this book is the one devoted to the praise of Ignatius Loyola and the Jesuit order. At page 179, he thus justifies the rebellion of Thomas Becket. He goes on like this, quote, Will it be said, as mere men of the world say, drawing their pens, fine to write the history of saints? Anselm was an arrogant and stubborn prelate. Becket, proud and ambitious? It is not Becket, for Christ's sake, they suffered, but for their own evil passions, for turbulence, obstinacy, and rebellion. For their own faults, they were justly punished. Well, are saints faultless? Yes, when crowned, not when in warfare. But it is so. Saints are men, and men are frail. Let us not be told, then, that they who stand for the name of Jesuits suffer for their own sins. No doubt they had them, but they suffered not for these. There is a deeper and diviner reason, a reason unchangeably true. They had the divine presence with them, and they were visibly stamped with the name they bore. They crossed the will of the world in its pride a place and set a bound to its pretensions. They were the shadow of a superior and the ministers of a higher law. This was their true offense. So that's the end of the quote, and the writer carries on. Is this not preaching a crusade? No doubt can remain of Dr. Manning's approval and commendation of Anselm's obstinacy, and Beckett's rebellion. Again, at page 188, Dr. Manning writes, St. Augustine, St. Bonaventure, and St. Thomas Beckett will forgive me if I say that Ignatius will well prepaid to them the price of his nurture when he gave to the church, Bellarmine, and Patavius, Vasquez, Suarez, Delugo, besides newer but memorable names. So Dr. Manning approves of the morality of the Jesuit doctors and exalts the founder of their order almost, if not quite to an equality with his admired Beckett. And then at page 187, he writes of the Jesuit order that it embodies the character of its founder. They quote, the same energy, perseverance, and endurance, it is his own presence still prolonged, the same perpetuated order, even in the spirit, manner of its working, fixed, uniform, and changeless. Unquote. We may agree with those historians who assert that the order of Jesuits bears the stamp rather of Lainez, the successor of Ignatius, rather than of himself, but that the purpose, spirit, and working of the order are unchanged, we fully admit. At page 191, Dr. Manning writes, The Jesuits who were executed like Garnett for his participation in the gunpowder plot and for other scarcely minor offenses by what we sneeringly call 
the execution of justice, unquote, are in heaven, enrolled as martyrs, unquote. On earth, he writes, they wore the garb of felons. In heaven, they stand arrayed in white and crowned. Here they were arraigned in the dock as malefactors. There they sit by the throne of the Son of God, unquote. Little doubt can remain that Dr. Manning has deliberately justified in these sermons rebellion, treason, and attempted wholesale murder, and I might add regicide, which is the killing of a king, as means for effecting the subjugation of England. And how does Dr. Manning appear to justify the course he has thus adopted? In these sermons, he shows that the prosperity of England is no proof of the divine favor, and at page 140, because England is Protestant and free, with the loathsome affection of charity, he writes, quote, And all this is true of our own land, dear to us by so many charities. For England now, like Rome, pagan of old, has become sentina, gentium, the pool, into which the evils of all the earth find a way. Unquote. It cannot be said that Dr. Manning has abandoned these opinions for his purpose, for they reappear in his more recently published works, and especially in a volume of essays, of which he is the editor. We are not left in ignorance, then, of the opinions, the principles, and the designs of the Romish Church, and of the Jesuits in particular, with regard to our own country. As we have said, the lessons which late events have produced, and those which are actually uttered by the emissaries of this spiritual tyranny should not be lost as uh, should not be lost on Englishmen. Wars, stratagems, and proclamations of future onsets all bespeak of the necessity for caution and vigorous self-defense in every people that will be free. So, with that, that's just kind of a good stopping point. And he goes on to talk about Jesuitism in relation to papal infallibility. And we will take more time to go through some of the highlights of this book at a later date. But we just want to take a little time to just introduce this subject matter here and just take a look at earlier authors who were struggling and who were at war with this Romish and foreign influence of a foreign power, a foreign king, the Pope of Rome being the king of, of the Roman city and the Roman state, which is its own nation-state at this point, especially after the, uh, the Lateran Treaty. So at this point, we can see how the papacy has raised itself up to be an absolutely superior, a, a, a supreme political governing force in the world, and has this, the pretensions of holiness and supposed religious, super-added, the kind of vanity of all the religiosity and the the candles and, and the incense and all the pomp and circumstances of supposedly praying to heaven and forgiving and uh, you know everyone's sins and having the power to absolve sins and these are the the crimes and lies of Rome and so just the idea that the pope is the infallibleists and these papists the jesuits who are pushing the idea that, that the pope is infallible of course are guilty of monstrous absurdities and actual physical crimes and treasons and murders and assassinations in the furtherance of their desire to hand the, the domination of the world, 
and world government over to the, the Pope. And that has been their intentions since their inception. And that has been their, of course, by the time Ignatius Loyola died, they had, you know, some 73 universities in many, many countries that they were already under their control. So the Jesuits were very early at it. It didn't take them a long time to build up to it. They were immediately given the resources and the financing and the power and the authority they needed to begin to regiment and to shape education in their, in their day and age and future education to come. So you guys already know what time it is. We got to plug our awesome sponsor, Wendy's Boutique Limited. You can go and check it out at wendyslimited.com. Wendyslimited.com. That's where you can find all the hottest women's apparel and fine gold and silver jewelry. I saw they had some good prices on Rolexes on there. And awesome Michael Kors jackets apparently selling on there a lot. From what I hear from Wendy. So just hit her up. She is bravely plugging our uh, Looking Glass Forum and Book Club episode. So it's great to have a sponsor like Wendy's Limited.com. Wendy's Limited.com. So you go to Wendy's Boutique and you check out all the hottest new women's apparel. And you look at the different fragrances and all the different things that she has. You find something awesome, get a great deal, and designer label. Uh, brand names so check out wendyslimited.com guys support the cause support our system stay beautiful stay boutique stay uh with the hottest new trends that are available looking great smelling great having some gold bling bling right we gotta have some uh, fine genuine uh 18 uh, 14 and 18 karat gold necklaces and earrings right so go check out wendyslimited.com guys 